Good morning. I always say I love to preach right after the Ewing sisters sing. That's a blessing. Thank you for letting the Holy Spirit flow through you so it makes it easy. So I'm excited to be here this morning and share this message with you titled, Jesus Said What? Okay. Um, How many of you in the sanctuary this morning have ever put your foot in your mouth? Okay. Anybody ever said something that was wrong that you thought was right and later on you had to correct yourself? Anybody ever said something you absolutely regret? Okay, said something in jest, out of anger. Well, I want to tell you this morning that Jesus does absolutely none of those things. Every word he says he means, he never has to take a word back, and everything he says is absolutely true. And that's why a little over a month ago when I traveled to Colorado to do a women's retreat out there, I was speaking and I came upon a particular verse, and I remember exactly where I was standing in that place. I remember exactly the people that I was looking at. It's just a moment that struck me. When I went over a particular verse, something came out of my mouth that I realized about that scripture, and when I said it, the Holy Spirit near about knocked me over, and I couldn't believe what Jesus actually said. And I I think I shocked the people at the women's retreat because I kind of just shut up for a while, and I was like, You know, and so I knew at that moment that the Lord was saying, you need to preach on this. This is very important. And so we're going to hear a message this morning called Jesus said what? All right. And we're going to take it from Revelation chapter two and three. If you have your Bibles, you can keep keep your finger there in Revelation chapter three. And actually what happens in Revelation two and three, we have a series of seven letters that are written to the churches. Uh, It begins with the church of Ephesus, and he ends up at the church of Laodicea, but there are seven churches, and Jesus actually writes these letters to the churches, which is very interesting, okay, that Jesus is the last thing that he said to the churches. You know, we have a lot of epistles in the Bible, but this is a letter that Jesus actually wrote to these seven churches. And all Bible scholars would agree that there are three different ways that we can look at these seven letters. And if you see them there in your Bible and you look at them, here's the way that you can view these letters. First of all, we can see them as describing conditions that were actually true in those churches in Asia Minor in the year the first century A.D. That's how we can look at them. So Jesus was actually addressing problems and commending them for certain things that were happening back then in history. Secondly, we can look at these letters and see them as a view of Christendom at any particular time in history. In other words, God's God's word is always true. It stands true today. So anybody, any Christian, could pick up any of these seven letters at any time and glean from them something about their own life because the word of God continues to apply to us. And thirdly, and I want you to take note of this because this is very interesting, scholars say that these seven letters also represent the consecutive preview of the seven periods of church history, which means that the church in Ephesus, that was the uh, apostolic church. So that was the first letter written. And then you have the church, the letter written to the persecuted church. And it goes on till it comes to letter number seven, which is a letter to Laodicea, which represents the modern church or the church of the last days or the church that we're in right now. And so we're going to deal with that particular letter. But before we do, I want to quote A.B. Simpson. 
I don't know how many of you know who this guy is, but he is the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination. So we're going on good word here. And A.B. Simpson said this about the letters. He said, there's something very touching and solemn about the personal aspect of the Lord's last messages to the churches. Such a message would produce a profound impression and thrill every hearer with a deep concern and holy earnestness. Now, A.B. Simpson is emphasizing here, this is Jesus Christ himself writing letters as the last thing he chooses to reveal in the Bible. And since it is so personal, right from the heart of Jesus himself and not through an apostle, we ought to take what he said with a deep concern and a holy earnestness. We ought to listen to what he's saying. And in fact, when we go to Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus says something very interesting here. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, it's neat how you can take a sentence, and depending on what word you emphasize, you can really emphasize the whole meaning. Okay, so watch this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit of God says to the churches. Now, that's important because we're living in a day and age that really gives in to the culture around us. The church of Jesus Christ at large is giving in to the culture around us. I went to school and got my master's degree in educational leadership at Crown College, a Christian and Missionary Alliance college. But I will tell you this. A lot of what you learn when you're trained in leadership is programs, ideas, men's ideas, growth programs. This is how you should grow your church. This is how you should do this. This is how you should do that. We hear it from the culture. We hear it from the experts. We hear it from so many prepackaged programs. But what I want you to know this morning, what is on my heart this morning is, that we would hear what the Spirit of God says to the churches. Amen? Anybody interested to know what God himself says about what we should be doing in the church instead of other people? And I also find this funny, and really, if you read the Bible for everything it's worth, it is quite entertaining as well. Because I read this, you know, you read the scripture, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, if you just read that at face value, you might think, was there some kind of plague going on in the first century that people's ears were falling off the sides of their heads? Because Jesus says, if you have an ear, you should listen to what God is saying. And we read that, we think, well, obviously that's not what Jesus meant. So what he did mean was something very serious. It's possible that you can have a physical ear and not be able to hear with your heart. It's possible that things go into your eardrum and they go right out. So Jesus says, if you'll have a spiritual ear, if you'll care at all about what God is saying, listen to what the Spirit of God says to the churches and not what everybody around you is saying the church should be. Amen? So what I want to do this morning, if you, if you would let me, is I'd like to pray. Because we're going to dig in here for a few minutes. This is a really difficult passage. But it is the word of the Lord God Almighty. So pray with me. Father, I come before you this morning and I thank you for your presence. I thank you for every person that you've gathered here. You love each and every one of us. You have our best interests at heart. Times infinity. I mean, we can't even understand how you have our best interests at heart. Lord, give us an ear that we can hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. 
I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, our ministry is a complete failure unless the Spirit of God himself speaks to the spirits of men. So, Lord, please let us hear your voice and let us respond to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to continue on here, and we're going to talk about the particular letter to the church of Laodicea. And again, because this letter in particular applied to the church back then, applies throughout all of history to any given church, but specifically applies to the period in which we're living the last days. So the Wycliffe Bible Commentary, I believe, says this wonderfully well about this letter to the church of Laodicea. It says, it seems that lukewarmness and indifference will mark the church at the end of the age, particularly indifference as to the great doctrines of the faith and an unwillingness to defend them. Now, how many of you would agree that even though this commentary was written decades ago, we are living in a day and age when people do not believe the great doctrines of the Bible, nor do they defend them? Uh, It's happening in America. We are starting now to say that sin is not sin, and the church of Jesus Christ is kind of just conceding. And I want to tell you something. It is not society's fault that society is all messed up and does not have right doctrine. It's the church of Jesus Christ's fault that society does not have right doctrine because we are not on fire for it. We are not defending it. We are not willing to die for it, much less live out the moments of our days and our spare time loving it. Yeah. There's a few people that... I I love the people that... Eventually. I can see you. I can see who you are. This is true. We are this church. There is such a spirit of indifference. The doctrines are being lost. We're giving in to sinfulness. Now, when you look at the church of Laodicea as it was in history at that time... This little city, all of these churches were within about a 60-mile radius of each other in Asia Minor. I want you to know about the church of Laodicea, that it was a church of great wealth, commerce, Greek culture, science, literature. They had the best medical school. So this particular church was a wealthy, prosperous, intelligent church. And this is the only church that Jesus Christ had absolutely not one good thing to say about. So I want to tell you something, that just because you're prosperous, just because a church is big, just because a church is successful in the world's eyes, just because the people think they're smart, doesn't mean that they're right. Are you with me? This is important to understand. So this is the backdrop of the church that Jesus Christ is talking about here. I want you to keep that in mind as we begin to go through what he said. Here are the words of Jesus Christ to the church of Laodicea, which, by the way, is us today. We are living in the last days. We are living in this lukewarm stage. Um, I just would want to say one thing about the Wycliffe Bible Commentary. For, for God's purposes, for about the past two years of my life, I have studied heavily the end times and the return of Christ. And in all of my studies about that, there are two things. If somebody said to me, what stands out to you most that the Bible says about the end of time? There are two things, most definitely, that the Bible says. Number one, deception. 
False teaching and deception of the devil will go rampant. Number two, people will grow lukewarm and complacent. Christians will not be on fire for Jesus. Those are the two things. So here's what Jesus said to the church of Laodicea, which is every one of us living in the world today. He said to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? These are the words of the amen. Now let's just stop right there. I love this. This is the only place in the Bible where Jesus, where the word amen is used as a proper name for Jesus Christ. Everywhere else we hear or say amen. How many of you have ever said amen? You know what you're saying when you say amen? You say amen at the end of a prayer or somebody's preaching and you say amen. What you mean is, so be it. Truly, truly. That will surely come to pass. I am in total agreement. That's what we mean when we say amen. But this is the only place where Jesus tells us, by the way, amen's not really something you just say. Amen is something that I am. Can you believe this? All the promises of God come true and actually happen because of Jesus Christ. He is not just saying amen, people. He is the amen. Truly, truly, what he says will come to pass. He says, I am the faithful and true witness. I don't care how smart, how great somebody thinks they are. There is no one that knows you and knows the truth like Jesus Christ. He is faithful and true to tell you what you want to hear, even if you don't want to hear it, because he doesn't want you to be lost. He is the faithful and true witness, the only one. And by the way, he just adds this on the end, I'm the ruler of God's creation. So just in case you want to ignore me, go ahead, but you're still going to deal with me. Because I'm in charge of everything. Everything and everyone will answer to me. And with that as a backdrop, Jesus begins. He says, I know your deeds. Now, I want to stop at that uh, comma right there. Because when we read the Bible, we read what it's saying, but we should also think about what it's not saying. Jesus did not say, I know the feelings in your heart. Okay? He did not say, I know what you profess with your mouth. Like if somebody walks up to you and says, are you a Christian? You say, oh, yeah, yeah, I attend Norman Alliance over there, you know, off Farview, you know. Yeah, yeah, what do they believe? Well, you know, I'm in agreement with their doctrine, okay. Jesus is not saying, I know what you profess. He's not saying, I know what your heart feels like. I know you feel all warm about Jesus. He doesn't, he's not talking about that. Feelings and profession can be a part of it, but that's not what Jesus is addressing. He looks at the church of Laodicea, see, because he knows. He knows they're professing one thing. He knows they're feeling one thing, but they're not doing it. So he says, I know your deeds, and this is what I know about them. Now, before I give you his thermometer about deeds, I want us to ask ourselves a question. I ask myself this question nearly every day. Where am I with my deeds? And by the power of God's Spirit, I want you to think with me, and I want you to make sure that you're not saying, where am I with what I say, not where am I with what I feel, but I want you to think about your everyday existence, the hours of your day, where you put your money, where you put your time, where you put your conversation, where you invest yourself. Where am I with my deeds? If we looked at that in terms of a thermometer, Jesus is about to tell us that there are two extremes. 
the very base of the thermometer would be what we would call stone-cold indifference, absolute rejection of Jesus Christ. This is a church or a person that says, I know what he's about, I know what the Bible says, I want absolutely nothing to do with it, and curses the name of Jesus Christ. That's a cold person or a cold church. And then at the very top, in the Greek, we can see this from the word that Jesus uses, the very top of the thermometer would be a person or a church that has extreme passion for Jesus. I mean a burning zeal for his word. The connotation here is your life is consumed by him. Everything you do, every way you invest, the way you spend your time, the way people look at you, everything about you screams, he is sold out for Jesus Christ. Man, he is on fire. I know everything he believes about Jesus and his love for him. Okay? That's the top. Now, here's the question that we have to ask ourselves. I thought about this in my own life. I'm like, okay, let me think this through because this is unpleasant. If you can look down, if, you, if you're up high enough that you can look down and say, well, I know people like that. I know people. I know atheists and I know other people who have really turned against God. I know people who are stone cold indifferent toward Jesus Christ. It's scary and I know them. If that's you and you can look down, then obviously you're not stone cold, right? But here's the scary part. If you can look up and say, wow, I know some people who I look at their lives and I think all they do is exude Jesus. Man, they love his word. They love him their whole life. Everything about them says, I'm on fire for Jesus Christ. If you can look up and you say, I I can see people like that, but that's not me, then you're not there. Okay? Then you're somewhere in the middle. Maybe lower, maybe higher, but somewhere in the middle. And the reason I pause and emphasize this this is scary stuff. Is because what Jesus is about to say next. Here's what he says. He says to the church, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I know that you haven't absolutely rejected me and everything in the Bible. But I also know the way you spend your free time, the way people know you, the conversations that you have, everything about your life. Everybody knows what you love, and it's not Jesus Christ the most. I also know you're not hot. You're all about other things, but not Jesus. So Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. So I want us to think through this term again, because remember what the bottom is. Remember what the top is. I want to talk for a minute before we go to Jesus' next words about the cold church. Not the in-between church, but the absolute stone-cold church. All right? J. Vernon McGee, the great Bible teacher, I thought his rendition of this was the clearest. Here's how he defines the cold church. Now, this is certainly not Norwin Alliance as a church right here, what you're going to experience. We're not the cold church. But if you're sitting here and you don't think there is such a thing as cold churches, you need to get on the Internet and start Googling some liberal churches. And you will find out that this exists all over America. You ready for this? There is such a thing as a cold church. J. Vernon McGee said, a cold church actually means a church 
that has denied every cardinal doctrine of the faith. It is given over to formality and is carrying on in active opposition to the word of God and the gospel of Christ. I've seen it on TV that people who dress themselves in long robes carry little crosses around in front of them and they don't believe a word of the Bible, nor do they teach it. Stone cold. Just the formality. We're a church, but we reject Jesus. Can you imagine that? That happens. That's true. That's a cold church. But that's not who Jesus is going to address here. But before we move on to what he does address, I want to tell you that even though not all churches may be stone cold right now, the wind is a blowing. It's coming. We are always in danger of growing cold. Always. You ready for this? Here's hints of the cold church. I want to get very serious here. This is very close to my heart. People can say I'm radical about trying to get this stuff and teach it. I don't care what people say about me. I am so dead serious. I give my life for this stuff. You ready for this? For, I don't know, 20 years, I have either been a Christian school educator or a youth leader. And in that time, I take my job very seriously. I do the research, and I know what the statistics are. And we don't like to think about it, so we put it out of our mind. But what I'm going to show you are some damning statistics about what the generation behind me believes about the great doctrines of the church. And before I present the information, I want to stand unequivocally. I can give you all kinds of sources for this and tell you the people that were polled, the teenagers that were polled here, are teenagers who stand up and say, I am a Christian. They regularly attend an evangelical or mainline denominational church, and most of them attend youth group. Okay? And where did I put my clicker? I'm getting so wound up. Okay, so because of that, now remember, these are professing Christian teenagers from church-going families. You ready for this? So if you think this isn't the kind of stuff you need to be discussing with your children and grandchildren, you're nuts. If you think they're just going to absorb everything that you don't emphasize, that you don't love, that you don't talk about over the dinner table, you're crazy. You've got to love this stuff so much. You've got to be so filled with Jesus. It must enter your everyday conversation all the time so much because here's what's happened. This is a hint of the cold church. When given the statement, Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, and other great religious leaders all have equal standing in leading people to heaven. Everybody hear that statement? Can everybody know that that is a damnable statement? And whoever believes such a statement is bound for hell. Because whoever believes such a statement does not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. You with me? When Christian teenagers across America were polled on this, 33% said we agree with that statement. Church attending. Not your average kid that family never takes in the church. Okay, now watch this. Jesus was a good man, but he was not God. Cardinal doctrine of the church. The deity of Jesus Christ is at risk here. Do you know how many Christian church-attending teenagers said, I, I agree with that statement? 40%. Jesus died, but he never really physically rose from the grave. 
50%. And that, that's crazy. That's, that's absolutely, and, and we can sit there. Do you know why the generation behind me doesn't value those statements? Because we didn't love those statements enough to talk about them all the time, to make them a part of everyday living. We're too busy taking our kids to every other activity, doing every other thing with them, but we're not praying and talking Jesus and studying the Word of God with them and talking about them, what's, what's going on in culture. It is sad. And that is not to mention the fact that the Presbyterian Church in the USA in the year 2013 decided to take the hymn In Christ Alone out of their hymnals because it had a verse that speaks of the wrath of God. That's not to mention the churches that are taking the blood of Jesus Christ, wiping them out of the hymnals. The churches today in America, evangelical churches, who are afraid to offend people by talking about glory, bloody stuff like the blood of Jesus Christ. This should scare us to death. When's the last time you heard a sermon on hell? A core doctrine of the Bible. You with me? The church in America today is in trouble. We're in big trouble. We're losing these things because we're not emphasizing these things. Now here's the example I gave in the morning service. I'm going to give it again. You know, having gone to school and training for leadership, when I was hired at a Christian school to become the principal... The board hired me because they said, we all are in agreement with what your vision is for Christian education. So we want you to come into this school, and we want you to bring that type of vision. We're on board with you. We want you to bring that vision to this school. So when I decided to do that, here's what happened. All my teachers, all the parents, all the kids, eventually, because that vision was important to the school board and to me, and to the leadership in teachers, that started trickling down, and that's what got passed on to the kids, right? Now, there were other things when I was hired about the school that I accepted. Now, tune into this. I accepted some of the other ways that the school operated because they weren't wrong. I accepted them, but they weren't important to the vision. So guess what happened to those accepted things three years down the road? They kind of trickled by the wayside, right? And the only thing that I really pushed and valued is what goes forward. That's how it is. You have to be intentional. What you don't push forward with intentionality, the rest, if, whatever you push forward is going to get through and get passed on. What you don't, it's just going to fall by the wayside. When's the last time? Then you sat and had a conversation with somebody about the core doctrines of the church and how excited you are what the Bible says about them. The cold church denies the truth. But watch this. The lukewarm church, it just doesn't love the truth enough to vigorously defend it and pass it on. So we Christians sit around all smug, so, oh, I go to church, I do this, I do that. We're not vigorous in defending the truth. We are not pushing it forward. And that's what lukewarm is. And watch what Jesus... I mean, when you talk about not loving the truth, I want to take you two other places because let Scripture interpret Scripture, okay? 
the Apostle Paul, in speaking of the coming of the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians, here's what he said. And by the way, you know, the Antichrist will pretty much take over the world and offer peace and help to everybody. And billions of people will buy into what he's saying and believe him and be totally deceived. That's what the Bible says. And if you don't think that people can buy into stupidity and be deceived, just watch the election process. I'm serious. God knows what's going to happen here. The Antichrist is going to come, but watch how scary what it says. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. So when the Antichrist comes, people will be deceived. They'll fall into the deceiving ways of Satan. And they also are perishing. They are dying. They're not saved. But watch after the comma. Why are they perishing and deceived? I didn't quite get it. Why? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Here's what I want you to notice. In some versions, this actually reads, they refuse to accept the love of the truth. They refuse to accept the love of the truth. They're not perishing because they refuse to just accept the truth. Do you hear what I'm saying? They refuse to accept the love of the truth. The word in the Greek there is agape. This is a very serious scripture. Certain people in the end times when the devil really lays it on thick, and how many of you think he already is in America? When the devil really starts to lay it on thick, He will try to deceive even the elect. And the people that are going to go down are the people, not the people who refuse to accept the truth. Not the people who who sat in, you know, refused to sit in church. It's the the people who refuse to love the truth. Jesus cooperated the same thing in Matthew 24. He was talking about what it would be like before he comes back the waves of what things are going to happen, these birth pains. And here's what he said. He said, sin will be rampant everywhere. Anybody agree with that? Sin will be rampant everywhere. But watch this. And the love of many will grow cold. Now, I bring this to your attention because when Jesus talks about you are neither hot nor cold to the church of Laodicea, he uses a particular word for cold that means stone cold, dead cold, okay? Here, it's a different word. It's two words translated because what it means is you're not ice cold yet. Here's what it literally means. It means, but the wind is a-blowing. And everybody knows what happens and you have a nice hot meal on the table and the air conditioner or fan kicks on and it starts blowing over the meal. What happens? Grows cold. So Jesus said, what's going to happen in the end times is people will start to head towards cold. And if those statistics that I put up there are true, we have way headed towards cold. And we're going to lose the generation after this one. Josh McDowell wrote a book some years ago called The Last Christian Generation. I think there's some credence to that. Something terrible is happening here. But Jesus did say, narrow is the way, didn't he? And few will be to find it, especially as times grow more difficult. So here's the deal. Concerning the truth, we have to ask ourselves these questions. Do we reject it? Are we stone cold rejecting, indifferent towards Christ? 
Do we accept it? Now, I put accept in quotation marks because I mean nominally accept. Do we say, oh, yeah, yeah, Christianity, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. I'll go with that. And I, I like how church feels and holds the family together, you know. Or do we love it? Love it. Do we love the truth? Because I'm going to tell you something. None of those is acceptable except number three. The things we love, here's the deal. The things we love, in other words, the things we hold dear, we cherish, the things we're passionate about, two things will happen. Number one, those things that we love will be obvious to everyone around us, right? And number two, they'll be passed down to the generation behind. What you purposely, intentionally push forward will be passed down. What you don't, it won't. And quite frankly, we failed. We haven't pushed it. We haven't loved it. And, and when I say push, I don't mean artificially. I mean it should exude from us. It should be natural that Jesus is, is the thing we're talking about, the thing we're speaking about, the thing we're making important in the home, the thing we're making important when we're out. I mean, it's all about Jesus and who he is and his word. He's the living word. This Bible is the written word. We go back to the thermometer, okay? This is reject. This is love. This is accept. Get that picture in your mind. Because what Jesus says next is the part where I stepped back and I was like, Jesus said, what? Watch this. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. The next statement is one that most people gloss over when they read this portion of Scripture. But to me, it is the most important part. You ready? I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. What? Did Jesus Christ just say that if I'm not 100% on fire, burning zeal, in passionate love with him, did he just say that he would rather me be stone cold dead to him? Did he? Yep. And that's what he said. He said, if you aren't going to be at the top of the thermometer, if that's not your desire, guess what? Jesus Christ our Lord said, then, if that's not going to be the case, I would rather you Declare publicly what's really true in your heart. Tell the world you don't really want anything to do with the real Jesus Christ and at least be earnest in what you actually believe. And furthermore, the reason he said this is because somebody who professes to be against Jesus Christ and to reject his doctrine is not nearly as dangerous as a person who goes to church and pretends the Christian thing on the outside, but they really don't love Jesus with a passion, they do much more damage because they're making their routine, playing around kind of thing look like that's what Christianity is. And Jesus died for real Christianity. Are you with me? So he said, I'd rather you just get it out there and be stone cold dead to me than play a game with me. This isn't a game. That's the statement where I stepped back and I said, Jesus said, what? 
so, because you are lukewarm, and before I go on, I'm quoting a lot of other sources here so that people, you know, you can still think I'm crazy, but at least you know I'm not crazy in the theology I'm teaching you. I'm going to quote A.B. Simpson again, the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance. And like I did first service, I am just going to read his quote, insert one tiny explanation, and then move on before people start throwing stones at me. That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to read it and move on because we may not like it. This is what A.B. Simpson said, the guy who founded this denomination. We heard what J. Vernon McGee described the cold church as. This is what A.B. Simpson says the lukewarm church is. The church that Jesus would rather have be stone cold than this. You ready for this? Its most marked feature is its utter indifference. It is too respectable to go to any religious extreme. A hallelujah is not heard within its courts. And any undue earnestness and intensity of feeling is regarded as bad form. It is gauged exactly to suit the people. Not God. It has studied out well the old maxim, be not righteous overmuch. It takes good care to keep religion in its place on Sunday mornings and not allow it to infringe upon the week's business, society, or pleasure. It is a thoroughly comfortable, easygoing, selfish, and fashionable religious club. And the Lord has become so sick of it that he is about to spit it out of his mouth as a loathsome and offensive nuisance. Not something he wants to tolerate, but an absolute hindrance to the work of God. Jesus said, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And as I close, I want to explain two words here. Number one, this version does not properly translate this word. Some versions do. The word for spit here in the Greek is the only time this is used. It is the word vomit. It is the word vomit in the Greek. So I know that it's almost lunchtime, but quite frankly, your soul is more important to me than your stomach. So here we go. Vomiting is disgusting. It goes against all natural processes. You are meant to eat food and have it go downward, be digested and spread as nutrients through your body. When we vomit, we hate it so much because it goes against all nature and all forces of gravity. And brings what's supposed to digest up out of our body in a violent and hideous and very distasteful way. Jesus chose the word vomit here. He chose it, not me. And here's what he meant. Being lukewarm or playing the game of Christianity without really being passionate for me makes me want to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, if there is one thing I don't want to be... I don't want to be anybody's vomit. But I especially don't want to be the vomit of Jesus Christ. And, and we love to quote John 14. Oh, you know, he's going to prepare a place for me. And if he goes to prepare a place for me, he will come again and receive me unto himself. 
or 2 Thessalonians concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and us being gathered together to Him. Whenever we think about Jesus coming back, we want Jesus to do what with us? Okay? Very opposite, vomiting. So if you're lukewarm, don't don't expect to be hugged. You are projectile vomit. Watch this. Now that all that's out, and I'm sweating putty balls up here and out of breath, I want to bring you to the hopeful part. You ready for this? Every word of God is pure. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of the Bible is in there for a reason, okay? And I checked this out in the original Greek, and it's there. And the reason I used the 1984 version of the NIV is because it best renders what's happening for this hopeful part. You ready? Jesus said, I am about to. He didn't say, I already did. He didn't say, I'm doing it right this second. He said, I'm about to. That's good news. That's very good news for me. Because I want to be on fire for Jesus. I want to be given a chance. This is my chance. He said, those whom I love, not those whom I hate. The same thing with me up here speaking this. It's not easy to do, but it's not because I dislike anybody. Jesus said, those whom I love, if I care about you, I want to tell you the truth. He said, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Repent is another word that's not getting passed down to the next generation. And it means turn around. It means you're walking this way, you're going wrong, you're going to damnation. Turn around. This direction, you're going to be vomit. This direction, you're going to be everything Jesus wants you to be. Amen? Amen. And I found it, I don't know, this is just the way my brain thinks, the last verse that we're going to go to. I found it interesting that Jesus said, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. But then in the next part, after he gives us his hope, he talks about eating. <laughs> you know? He, but I think it's interesting because you know when you're sick, you, you can't think about food, can you? But Jesus goes immediately from talking about being sick at his stomach to eating with you. That's a big change. That means something has happened. Watch this. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. A lot of people think this verse is to unsaved people, but it's not. It's to the church of Laodicea. And how sad that these people are having church. They're meeting in a church. Can you imagine this? But picture this. They are in church, and Jesus is outside the door. They're going through their formalities and their routines to feel good about themselves in their Sunday routine. And Jesus is outside going, Can I come in? If anyone hears my voice, and obviously the knob is on the inside because he's not breaking it down to get in. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, 
I will come in and eat with him and eat with me. One last thing I want to say. When you're passionately in love with Jesus Christ, it makes all the difference. One time I was asked to go to, I had to have a luncheon with these people that were way above me in the Association of Christian Schools and Dr. Hedges and a couple others were going to take me out to lunch. And it was the best food. You know, I don't remember if it was steak or pasta. It was something really good, and it was like the best food. And I was like, oh, this would be really nice if I were going with somebody I felt close to. But when I'm eating with Dr. Hedges, I'm so worried about what's dripping down my chin. Am I using the right fork? You know what I mean? I mean, any of you who know me know that I am just a slob, and I don't invite me to a nice dinner party because I don't know which way is up. But all I was saying was, it's one thing for Dr. Hedges to say, I want to eat with you. Okay? I could go, but I could feel very, very uncomfortable because we don't have that good relationship. But if you get together with family or friends and you eat, don't you love that? Don't you love going out to dinner with your family and your friends? Who cares what you get on your face, right, Ruth? We don't care. Who cares if you chew with your mouth open sometimes? Nobody really cares. Okay, so it's one thing for Jesus to say, I'll come in and eat with you. But you know what? He also wants you to feel such a fervor, such a love, such a relationship with him that you can actually eat with him too. Quit making this a formality. Quit, quit holding off Jesus as some being that you don't really know, even though you come to church every week. He's knocking. I want you to know me. You've got to love me. Would you bow your heads, please? Dearest Jesus, Thank you for your letter to the Church of Laodicea, which is a church, which is a letter to Shelley Prindle. It's a letter to Norman Alliance Church. It's a letter to every single person that's here this morning. You love us enough to tell us the truth, and you love us enough to give us hope found in those four little words. I am about to. If there is anybody in this sanctuary this morning who says, I want to grab hold of those four words, I want to take the opportunity to hear Jesus knocking and quit playing just religious stuff or half-hearted games I want to eat with him and he with me. I want to love him with everything I've got. Whether you once knew that on fire relationship or you never have, but you want to be at the top of the thermometer, Jesus is here. If you hear his voice and open the door, he will come in. He never lies. He never lies. If you hear his voice and you open the door, he will come in. Heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Is there anybody who'd like to respond to that by raising a hand, raising a finger? Praise you, Jesus. People all over. Anyone else?
is a good thing to mark a, an occasion like this. Anyone else? I want to respond. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we praise you today for your work. We praise you for who you are. I thank you for your grace and your mercy, and I pray that each one of us would find ourselves at the top of the thermometer, red hot on fire for you, by your grace and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.